We're going to start tonight actually in Revelation 12 because from last week I wanted to go back and touch on something in Revelation 12 and Revelation 13 before we dive into Revelation 14 tonight. So last week we were talking about a lot of different things, but we were talking mainly about the the main characters in the tribulation period. And God gives us the main characters in Revelation 12 and 13. And one of those main characters is the nation of Israel, represented by the woman in Revelation 12. And I just wanted to direct your attention for a moment to verse 5 and 6 once again of Revelation 12. Where John writes, So the woman gave birth to a son, a male child who is going to rule over the nations with an iron rod. Obviously, Jesus Christ. Her child was suddenly caught up to God and to His throne, and she fled into the wilderness. Now, this is during the tribulation period. Time gap, obviously, from the ascension of Christ to what John is now writing in verse 6. And she, Israel, fled into the wilderness where a place had been prepared for her by God so she could be taken care of by God for 1260 days. Notice that the preparation by God is made prior to her flight so that the place is actually ready for her upon her arrival. Then if you go over to verse 13 of chapter 12, Notice it says, when the dragon realized, Satan, that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, Israel, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a giant eagle so that she could fly out into the wilderness once again to the place God prepared for her where she is taken care of. It's a specific location set aside for her protection and then John goes on to say, away from the presence of the serpent for a time, times, and half a time. In other words, he has an inability to gain access to her at this point because of God's protection. Here's the point I want to make of how I want to take that principle of what John is revealing to us of how God is going to protect Israel because he's prepared a place for them ahead of time and how I want to apply that to our lives today. God is always, always in the mode of preparing us. Because God knows what's coming. And we, all, we don't always know what's coming. So we have to remember to look at our lives that whatever we're going through right now is a preparation that God is trying to do in our lives so that we will be able to meet the demands of tomorrow. Things that we don't even know about yet. That's why all of us have to be open to the working of God at any time in our life because all times of our life are preparation times for what's ahead. So think of even right now in your life. Your life may be where you want it to be. It may not be where you want it to be. But the encouraging thing is there's a purpose behind it because God is using it to prepare you and I for what lies ahead. And then secondly, notice also in this passage about Israel's protection, that God went ahead of them and, and made this place all ready for them so that when the time came, there it was. And, and remember that in the tough times of life, that God has already went there ahead of you. And, and again, He's making a place so that you can get through it, just like Israel's going to be able, you know, to some degree to get through the tribulation period. 
He's going to make a way for you and I to get through even the tough times of life because he goes ahead of us and prepares a place for us, even in the midst of that trial or tribulation. And then, of course, I couldn't help but think about whenever I thought about a prepared place that it certainly reminds me of John 14, where Jesus said to his followers, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself so that where I am there, you may be also. And so Jesus has prepared a place for you and I. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be ready for us. It's going to be all ready for us because he went ahead of us to prepare a place. So hopefully that will be encouraging to you tonight to know that God is a God of preparation. And God is always preparing his people for what lies ahead because he's the only one who knows exactly what lies ahead. And that's why he calls us to trust him at each and every moment of our lives because whatever we're going through, good or bad, God is using it in our lives to prepare us for what's ahead. Second principle. Notice in chapter 13. In verse 9, John wrote, this is obviously the toughest times ever on planet earth during the tribulation. And so John ends that passage with, if anyone has an ear, he had better hear, grasp the significance of what Jesus or God is saying. And then in verse 10 of chapter 13, he says, if anyone is meant for captivity, into captivity, he will go. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, then by the sword, he must be killed. In other words, John is revealing to us that during the tribulation period, the saints of God must maintain, in a sense, trust in God's sovereignty and trusting their appointment, their specific role in history. That of all times in history, they're going to be going through the tribulation period, the toughest time ever on planet earth. And, and God is basically saying, if, if you're to go in captivity, then you're going to go into captivity. If you're going to be killed by the sword, you're going to be killed by, you're going to be martyred. But trust me, trust me, trust in my sovereignty, trust in my appointment for you, if you will. And then he ends verse 10 with these very important words. This requires steadfast endurance and faith from the saints. The Greek word there for steadfast endurance is the Greek word hupomone, which also is translated in your Bible, perseverance in places, endurance. We looked at this word a lot and we went through the study of Hebrews and endurance and spiritual stamina. And he's simply saying... We all need steadfast endurance. They're going to need it during the tribulation, but folks, we need it today as well. We need Christians who have that steadfast endurance, that ability literally in the Greek to remain under or abide under whatever they're dealing with. Sometimes in life, you know, we're in a situation and we want to get out of it. And and yet God has a purpose for why he has planned us to go through it. And instead of wiggling out of it, God is saying, remain under it. Learn all you can from it. It's a time of preparation. It's a time of testing. It's a time for a lot of things. It's a time for testimony. In a sense, what God is saying is, 
to them and I think to us is we must learn to remain faithful in the midst of extreme pressure. Now, obviously, we live in a time of extreme pressures today to not follow Christ and not be committed to Christ and to, you know, all of that. Can you imagine what it's going to be like during the tribulation period, the pressure that's going to exist, especially considering the fact that in that time, uh, people who say they're followers of Christ are probably going to have their head lopped off or be killed in some fashion. And, and so it's literally going to cost them their lives. And so they're going to have that pressure to renounce Christ and renounce their faith in Christ in order to stay alive. And that's why he's saying it's really going to take steadfast endurance to go through the tribulation. But folks, the principle is true for us today. It's, it's going to take steadfast endurance for the saints of God to deal with the things that we need to be dealing with in the times in which we live. And that's why it's so important that as Christians and as churches, we dedicate ourselves to spiritual growth and maturity to build up the inner strength that we're going to need to face the challenges of our day because they are unique to, to history. So with that said, let's go to chapter 14 tonight. We're going to come back to some of these points. Chapter 14. John says, Then I looked, and here was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. So, first of all, you'll notice in your notes, after Revelation 14, the first scripture reference is Isaiah chapter 2. Could you turn there, please? And the reason I want you to turn there is because there is a significance to Mount Zion and the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And you can also find, if, if you're interested, I didn't write this in, the, in your notes, but if you also want the passage where Jesus, literally when he comes back, stands on Mount Zion, uh, you can go to uh, Zechariah chapter 14. But I, I want tonight to, you to turn to Isaiah chapter 2. And once I find it, I'll read it. Here we go. In the future... Isaiah writes, the mountain of the Lord's temple will endure as the most important of mountains and will be the most prominent of hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the temple of the God of Jacob, so he can teach us his requirements and we can follow his standards. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? I mean, the Bible is basically saying one day, instead of not many people being interested in what God has to say, that in the millennial kingdom of Christ, people are going to be flocking to hear what God has to say. For Zion will be the center for moral instruction. The Lord will issue edicts from Jerusalem. He will judge disputes between nations. He will settle cases for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations and they will no longer train for war. And certainly a part of verse 4 you recognize from outside of the United Nations building in New York City if you've ever been there. Part of chapter 2 of Isaiah verse 4 is outside the United Nations building. 
The problem is the United Nations aren't going to bring this about. But Jesus Christ is. And notice the center of it all is Mount Zion. And I wanted to start there because we're going to bookend our study tonight with this passage where Isaiah writes, In the kingdom, what we have to look forward to is one day there will no longer be conflicts between nations. And all the junk that we see on TV today and all the nations in upheaval and the fighting and all of that will be put to rest one day. And they literally will beat their swords into plowshares. Because God has decreed it. It's the way it will be as Jesus rules with the rod of iron. So back to Revelation 14 for just a moment. You're going to keep your fingers pretty hopping tonight. So I looked and here was the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we were already introduced to these 144,000 Jewish evangelists earlier in the book of Revelation. A couple points. First of all, having the name of the father and his name... I think is in contrast to the mark of the beast that we just learned about last week at the end of Revelation chapter 13. But I also want to make this point as well. You'll notice the next scripture there in your notes is 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 19. Would you please turn there for just a moment? 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 19. God is going to have his name And Jesus is going to have his name, in a sense, as a mark of ownership and identification on the 144,000. And it reminds us uh, that God obviously has, in a sense, a mark already on his people, if you will. I believe that every true Christian obviously has the Holy Spirit living within them, God himself. And, And that is the mark, if you will... That's why Paul said we are sealed until the day of redemption by the Spirit of God. So notice what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.19. And this is in a passage where Paul's talking to Timothy about people straying from the faith and, and, and people's faith being undermined. And it's almost like, you know, living in an age where it's like, who, who do we know? You know? Who's really a believer and who's not? And sometimes even Christians may look around and go, I don't know if anybody really loves the Lord anymore type of thing. But notice what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19. However, God's solid foundation remains standing. God has a foundation that stands no matter what man does. No matter how... You know, how much hypocrisy, uh, how, how many people fall away, whatever. It doesn't affect God's foundation. It always stands. The truth of God, the Word of God always stands. God's Word is forever settled in heaven. And then notice, the Lord knows those who are His. See, God's not confused. God knows exactly who His children are. Always. Now, you and I, yeah, we have trouble sometimes discerning who's, who's really a Christian and who's not. And that's not up to us anyway. But the point is that Paul's saying, but the Lord knows who are His. In the midst of 
apostasy and people leaving the faith and, and people's faith being undermined and people straying from the faith and people lukewarm and all this. God knows exactly who are His in the midst of it all. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from evil. If we as Christians truly want to, in a sense, let others know that there's a difference in our lives, then we need to live distinct lives. We need to turn away from evil and, and be righteous and, and obey the Lord. So I wanted to point that out because just like in the book of Revelation, when the Bible, when John said that this 144,000 had his name, Jesus' name, and the Father's name written on their foreheads as a mark of identification, we must be reminded that the Lord throughout history always knows who his children really are. We can fool other people. Other people can fool us. We will be fooled. Uh, we may fool others. But at the end of the day, the Lord knows who are his. Back to Revelation 14. John writes, I also heard a sound coming out of heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. Now the sound I heard was like that made by harpists playing their harps. And they were singing a new song. Their response is a song of praise. Singing is biblical. We're going to be doing a lot of singing in the kingdom and in heaven. And they were singing before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Why? Because they were the only ones who shared in that experience. They alone knew what it was like to, in a sense, be redeemed from the earth through that experience as those 144,000 evangelists. And it simply reminds us that... When you and I go through unique experiences with God, it should elicit praise. And, and it's things that, you know, sometimes we can share things with others, but other times the things that God has done for us and the things God has brought us through not only should elicit praise from us, but sometimes they're so unique to us that, that it's just sort of our own song, if you will. And we see that with the 144,000 as they come out of the tribulation. Notice verse 4, these are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, he makes that point because, folks, if we think we live in such a sexually immoral time now, it's going to be even worse in the tribulation. So the point is that these 144,000 have actually kept themselves pure in the midst of unbelievable impurity. You know, I hear Christians say today, I, I don't know how, you know, how, how does God expect us to remain pure in the world in which we live? Well, listen, if God can, can enable these people to remain pure during the tribulation period, then He can help us to be pure in our time as well. These folks should be a challenge to us and a motivation. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The word follow means to accompany closely and to be completely obedient. They don't follow Jesus from a distance. They follow Him close. And these were redeemed from humanity as first fruits, the first of a, of a bigger harvest to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found on their lips. 
and they are blameless. Now, I want to talk about the word blameless for just a moment. It's a very interesting word. It was a word actually used in the food culture of the day. It was a word that meant for a plate being set in front of somebody that something would be evident that would cause one not to taste what was on the plate. And so remember, blameless doesn't mean sinless because none of us are going to be perfect. But God said of these, they were blameless and God calls us today as His children to live blamelessly. It means to live in such a way that as others, especially non-Christians, observe our lives, there is nothing plainly evident that would cause them not to taste Christ or our faith. And yet we know. We know that there are many either Christians or professing Christians, and maybe we were at one time, or people that we know who live in such a way that, that they turn non-Christians off. That non-Christians want nothing to do with Christ or faith in Christ because of the way they live their lives. That's not being blameless. That means that they're living in a way that people don't even want to taste Christ. Because of the way that see God wants us to live in such a way that in a sense our lives are attractive. That that people who don't have Christ see something about us and go, I want what they have. What is that? Rather than being repulsed or repelled by us. And that's exactly what the word blameless means. Something evident that would cause one not to taste. It's something you and I need to ponder. Are there things in our lives that's so evident to others as we walk through the day that we turn people off to Christ, to our faith, to the Bible, to church? Something we need to think about. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And God, even through the tribulation, is reaching out in mercy and grace trying to offer salvation to people. He declared in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has arrived and worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. I want to make two points. First of all, notice at the very end of verse seven that the creator creature distinction is the basis for all worship. That's very important principle. Only the Creator is worthy of worship. All other worship is idolatry from a biblical perspective. And that's why it's so important to even acknowledge that God is Creator, because that's where it all starts. And that's why down through history, obviously, many people in humanity don't even acknowledge that Jesus or that God created the universe and created them. And yet that is the foundation of worship. That's exactly what John is pointing out here. Then I want to go back to this concept of fearing God. This really should be the response of people to the eternal gospel that the angel proclaimed in verse 6. So if you have your Bibles, again, look, the next one in your notes is Luke 12, 4 through 7. And again, remember, there's a healthy fear of God and there's an unhealthy fear of God. God doesn't want us to have an unhealthy fear of God. He wants us to have a healthy fear of Him. And if you're a parent, you you can understand that. You've been a child, you understand that. There's a healthy fear, in a sense, that parents should have in their children's lives, and there's an unhealthy fear 
that parents can have in a child's life. I believe that my parents, I had a healthy fear. It's just a respect. It's a reverence. And that's what God wants. He wants us to reverence and respect Him. So notice, Jesus says these words in Luke chapter 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom you should fear. Fear the one who, after the killing, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. In fact, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not be unhealthily afraid. You are more valuable than many sparrows. You see... He calls us to fear God, but not in an unhealthy way when he says, don't be afraid. God loves you. He will take care of you. You're more valuable than than other creatures in creation. He takes care of them. He will take care of you. But he does call us to respect him and reverence him and have a healthy fear. We need to be reminded of that, especially again in our culture where God has become a buddy more than a holy God that we sang about tonight. Back to Revelation, verse 8. A second angel followed the first, declaring, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great city. The word fallen means to be under judgment and condemnation or literally to be overcome. Why is Babylon overcome? She made all the nations drink of the wine of her immoral passion. In other words, the fall of Babylon is occasioned by her iniquity, her sin. She, in a sense, crumbled from within. And we're going to talk more about what this Babylon is in the coming weeks. But suffice it to say tonight, one of the great principles that God is reminding us of is that many times... We blow ourselves up just like Babylon did. They crumbled from within. They became weak spiritually from within. And it wasn't so much that they were conquered from without. If they were conquered from outside, it was only because they became so weak from the inside. And that's true of any country like the United States. That's true of anyone's lives. That if we don't stay strong spiritually, we invite attack from the outside. And if we're not strong enough to stand up to it, then we get overcome by it. And it takes over. And so that's an important principle to remember as well. Verse 9, back in Revelation. A third angel followed the first two, declaring in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and takes the mark, that person is going to be made to drink the wine of God's anger that has been mixed undiluted and literally pure, full strength in the cup of his wrath. He will be tortured. Or tormented, the word literally means going to the bottom, is what it means in the Greek language. With fire and sulfur in front of the holy angels and in front of the Lamb. And the smoke from their torture will go up forever and ever. And those who worship the beast and his image will have no rest, no break, day or night, along with anyone who receives the mark of his name. See, those who will not respond to God's gracious offer of salvation are now warned of the eternal significance of their decision. There is no more important decision in any human being's life than the decision for Christ. Because more than any other decision, and you and I can talk about major decisions in life, who we marry, whether we get married, buying a house, big decision, 
what job or career or vocation we have. All kinds of big decisions in life. Having children, not having children. We could go on and on. The most important decision for every human being is what will I do with Jesus Christ? More of eternal significance. And you can see that once again portrayed here in the book of Revelation. But then in verse 13, he says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead, literally those presently dying, even during the tribulation, who die as martyrs for their faith in Christ. Yes, says the Spirit, so they can rest from their hard work because their deeds will follow them. The word rest there in the original language means to recover and be refreshed. God says, you've been through a hard time, but when you get here, you're going to have time to recover. Remember the contrast? The, the wicked will not have rest or a break day or night. There is no chance of recovery in hell. But in glory with the Lord, we will all not only have a chance to recover and be refreshed, but then be strengthened to be able to carry out the responsibilities of serving the Lord throughout eternity. Now, you'll notice next there in your notes then is the Scripture, Hebrews 6.10. I thought this would be an encouragement to you because as, as John writes about their deeds following them, I want to remind all of you great folks here at the Oasis that the same thing is true for you. Hebrews 6.10. Other people may never notice what you do for the Lord. And really, when you think about it, unless you've been called by God to have sort of an upfront gift, like teaching the Word as, as God gave me, most of our ministries, most of our service for the Lord is behind the scenes. Most people aren't going to necessarily notice. And we're not always going to get the, the thanks and the appreciation we should. But the one thing we can always... No, is it at the end of it all, when I stand before God, every good thing that I did, God will never forget it and will make sure that he rewards me accordingly. Notice what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 6 verse 10, for God is not unjust. See, from God's perspective, he would actually be doing something against his character if he forgot about the good things that we did. So God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name. And specifically in this context, in having served and continuing to serve the saints. Because God says that's where it should start. It's great that God calls us to serve our world and our community and all that. But God says the first priority for the Christian should be primarily, let's start with each other within the church and then go out. In other words, there should not be a need within the church that's not being met while we're going out meeting the needs outside the body of Christ. We should be taking care of each other first, then moving out. And you see that. We're going to see that again later on in Galatians chapter 6. So don't miss that. God is not going to forget what you do. Just as their deeds followed them into eternity, your deeds will follow you. And again, based upon Sunday, don't forget, our deeds do not bring us into a right relationship with God. It's a whole different foundation and motivation that I talked about Sunday. 
The reason we do what we do is because of our love for Christ, not because we're trying to gain a relationship with Christ. We can never do that through our good deeds. Verse 14, back in Revelation. Then I looked and a white cloud appeared and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. He had a golden crown on his head, a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple shouting in a loud voice to the one seated on the cloud. Use your sickle and start to reap because the time to reap has come since the earth's harvest is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. The harvest is used throughout scripture to symbolize the final gathering and separation of mankind. And notice in verse 15, he says the earth's harvest is ripe. Literally in the original, it's beyond ripe. It's rotten. It's overdue, in other words. God has been more than patient, if you will, with man. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel who was in charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to the angel who had the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes off the vine of the earth because its grapes are now ripe. And he's using the illustration of the, of the grapes and of the wine and all of that to illustrate the judgment that's coming on the earth. So the angel swung his sickle over the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and tossed them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Although God's patience and mercy are abundant, He must eventually judge in order to vindicate his character. If God never judged sin, he would cease to be, as we sang tonight, holy. See, yes, God is a God of love. And God offers man his love. But there comes a point that if man will not respond to God's grace and mercy and love, God, as a holy God, to in order to stay holy must judge sin. And he judged our sin on the cross of Christ. Jesus took our judgment upon himself. And that's why what a great gospel we have. That that you and I do never, we never have to go through judgment because Christ took our judgment for us. But there are many throughout history who rejected Christ and will have to be judge. So turn the next scripture. We're wrapping it up here to Galatians chapter six. We're going to be covering this in depth in a couple weeks when we finish up the book of Galatians here on Sunday morning. But I did want to get to this because this is exactly the principle that's really being looked at here in Revelation. Verse seven of Galatians six, do not be deceived. God will not be made a fool. For a person will reap what he sows. Because the person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So notice Paul goes on to say, We must not grow weary in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not give up. Now notice verse 10. Again, I don't want to belabor this, but Paul says, So then whenever we have an opportunity... Let us do good to all people, yes, but notice the last phrase. Especially to those who belong to the family of faith. See, from God's perspective, it's great that we want to minister to everyone. But God wants to see it also fleshed out first within the local church, His own body. God would not be pleased if you and I are not, in a sense, ministering and taking care of each other, but we're going outside and taking care of others. God says, no, it's got to start 
here, especially those of the household of faith. God is not mocked. One day man will reap what he has sown. One other one. Go back to Revelation for just a moment. So then the Bible basically tells us the immensity and magnitude of this final judgment of God. When it says the wine press was stomped. In other words, it's like the grapes were stomped outside the city and blood poured out of the wine press up to the height of horses' bridles for a distance of almost 200 miles. Now, I believe he's describing the battle of Armageddon, which won't be much of a battle at all, but it's sort of the final, if you will, stage of, of God's judgment upon the earth. With that said, would you go with me then to that final scripture, actually the next to last one, Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3. Before we read about, or before we think about all the wonderful things that Isaiah talked to us about at the very beginning in Isaiah chapter 2 about what the kingdom's going to be like. And when Jesus does come and make things right, my goodness, what a great day that's going to be. And, and, and nation, there will, there's not going to be any war anymore. And, and, and people are going to beat their swords into plowshares. But before that day comes, before that day comes, this day must come. And so notice in Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, God says through the prophet this, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for a holy war. Call out the warriors. Let all these fighting men approach and attack. Now notice, just the opposite of what Isaiah said. Before that day comes in the tribulation, notice what's going to happen. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I too am a warrior. Lend your aid and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves to that place. Bring down, O Lord, your warriors. Let the nations be roused and let them go up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit in judgment on all the surrounding nations. Same language as Revelation. Rush forth with the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, stomp the grapes, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow. Indeed, their evil is great. Crowds, great crowds are in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars withhold their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion. From Jerusalem, his voice bellows out. The heavens and the earth shake. But don't miss the last phrase of verse 16. The Lord is a refuge for his people. He is a stronghold for the citizens of Israel. Folks. We do live in challenging, tough times. And we see that there's even a tougher time coming on the earth. And God calls even those people who become Christians, followers of Christ, to steadfast endurance. Strong faith. Because that's what it's going to take. So in closing tonight, I hope this will be an encouragement and a challenge. The last scripture I wanted to touch on was 2 Timothy. If you'll turn there. I think I have 2 Timothy in your... Yeah, okay. I couldn't remember whether I did or not. And we'll close with this. But I think this is a really 
cool but important principle, one that God opened up my eyes to a while ago. Notice in just the very first verse of 2 Timothy, before he goes down Paul and starts to give specifics of why the last days are going to be difficult, notice he tells Timothy, understand this, Timothy, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here, but I think you'll see why in just a moment. The word difficult there, in the Greek language, or it might have perilous times in your translation. The Greek word is the word chalepos. It's spelled C-H-A-L-E-P-O-S. C-H-A-L-E-P-O-S. Chalepos. Now, the reason why this is so important is because that means, that word means that something is hard to do, hard to take, or hard to bear because of one's strength being reduced. Hang in there with me. This is really important and really cool. In other words, things are going to be hard to do, hard to take, hard to bear because of people's strength being reduced. Hang in there just for a moment. The word chalepos. It actually finds its origin from the Greek word chalao, spelled C-H-A-L-A-O. And what chalao means in the Greek language is to let down, to relax, slack. So don't miss what Paul is saying here. He's saying, here's the problem, guys. Yes, the last days are going to be difficult. They're going to be challenging. But here's what's going to make them even more difficult for people. That for the most part, even Christians are going to let down, slack, and relax in their Christian life. They're not going to be diligently building themselves up and and growing to the point where they're strong. So that when the challenges of life face them, they are so much more difficult than they even would be. And they're so much more harder to take, harder to bear, harder to endure because their strength has been reduced. Wow. Talk about just one word that is just pregnant with meaning and a great challenge to all of us to continue to be strong in the Lord. And we all know this principle. Because there's been times in our life where we've went through maybe challenging trials and yet we've been stronger at those times and those times didn't get the best of us. We know this principle. And yet there's been other times where we've went through maybe similar tough times and yet we were weak. We were not as strong as we once were or are now. And those things just ran us over. We, we were overcome. The way I illustrate it in my mind, because I am so not the exercise person, my family will tell you this, is, as I thought of this though, because I used to be in shape, is it would be like me trying to lift a weight that I used to be able to lift, and because I haven't lifted for so long, I can't get the weight up. That's what the word difficult means. My strength over the years has been reduced to where the weight I used to be able to lift, I can't lift anymore. Or the pull-ups that I used to be able to do, I don't have the strength to do them anymore. That's what the word difficult means. It's saying that, yeah, it's hard, but it's even harder because 
We lack the strength. And the reason we lack the strength is because we've let down. We've relaxed. We've slacked in our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. And that makes the difficult days even more difficult. My personal take on this, what God is saying to me is, guess what, Jeff? In the last days, people are just going to be weaker and more fragile than they've ever been in history. That the things that our ancestors, my grandparents' generation dealt with and got through, people today are just like, oh, I don't know what to do. And the reason why that generation could go through tough times and somehow we just crack under the pressure isn't just because, yeah, things are hard, but also because we have neglected to develop the inner strength and our personal relationship with God that can help us to get through these things. That's why it's difficult. And I wanted to end with that because to me there is no greater place to look in scripture to to show people if, if you're talking to people why at the oasis we're all about what we're all about for that very reason we want to try to build each other up and make each other as strong as we possibly can be and also to be a refuge in a place where we can be brought together by god and do this together and encourage each other and refresh each other as the Bible has called us to do tonight, especially to those of the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. So with that tonight, let's go out this week and let's instead of relaxing and slacking in our spiritual walk with God, let's get back to the spiritual weight room, if you will, and let's build ourselves up and make ourselves strong. It won't only benefit us, But then the strength that we carry can benefit others as well in the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement, for the promises, the fact that you will never forget, Lord, the deeds that we do, the ministry and the service that we do in your name. But God, thank you for the challenges as well. Thank you for the reminders, God, that You don't promise us an easy life. You don't promise us a life without trials and challenges. But what you do promise us is that if we will dedicate ourselves and commit ourselves to following you, you will give us all the inner strength that we need to meet every challenge, every difficulty, every trial we will ever face. As Paul said to the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So God, may we at the Oasis... Be a group of people, a group of believers in Jesus Christ who are committed to being strong and growing stronger. So that, Lord, not only can we be an encouragement to each other, but that we can be an example of what the church really should be all about. Go with us, Lord. Protect us. Watch over us. May you use us from now even till we meet again on Sunday. We bless your name, Lord. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. Have a wonderful rest of the week. We'll see you Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. Storms of this life I won't turn back, I know
चाहिए